Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Nudie Brains podcast. My name is Emily and I'm the host. This week I got to talk to Spencer, who is at entirely eco on Instagram, and I'll let him spell that for you a little bit later because it's a little bit, uh, it's spelled differently because it's a pun on his name. And this was actually the second time that I interviewed Spencer. So the first time we tried, he was out doing field work and actually got stuck on a remote island for two extra days. Um, and the quality just didn't sound good. So we decided, you know what, let's re-record it. Um, and Spencer is a super interesting person. He started out in Texas, um, then went to school in Ireland, and now lives in New Zealand. And I think that's A, messed up his sleep schedule because he seems to always be awake whenever I want to DM him and talk to him about logistics of recording a podcast. And B, it makes for a very interesting accent. I don't think he'll admit it, but he does have a slight Irish accent. Um, And I think he's starting to pick up on the New Zealand accent as well and has no hint of a Texas accent at all. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe if you are not already. And you can follow me on Instagram at Emily, the Marine Biologist. So thank you so much for being on my podcast today, Spencer. Yeah, thanks for having me. And just a little disclaimer for everyone, we actually recorded this podcast before, but because Spencer was out in the field, uh, the audio didn't come through super well, so we're going to try it again. Um, So what is your favorite invertebrate? My favorite invertebrate, I think, would be the Weraponga. It's the biggest cricket in the world, and they are endemic to here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. They are enormous and adorable. They have these little faces that just look like they're smiling to you, but they're like the size of your hand, which is uh, quite unusual for a cricket. Yeah. Yeah, I looked up a picture last time, and like they're they're really intense. They're kind of scary, but I'm glad that you like them. To each their own, right? When you actually see them, they're a lot cuter. Yeah, uh, but they are massive, which can I can understand would be off-putting. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, why did you start studying science in the first place? Well, so originally research science wasn't actually what I was going into. I was going into more like the practical side. I was following my dad into optometry or being an eye doctor, but uh, it became pretty apparent that I was not interested in continuing that. I don't like being inside. I like being outside. I like getting out into nature. And I thought that conservation would be the best way to go about this uh, conservation science. Uh, I get to, you know, kind of work my brain a bit uh, more, uh, no offense to optometry, but I get to go out and discover new things and experiment and come up with all these new projects. Um, kind of the rinse and repeat lifestyle of uh, many careers wasn't for me. I like it to be something new all the time, and that's something science gives me. And particularly the conservation side to biology, I, I get to protect the animals and environments that I love. Uh, it was a really great combination of like my hobbies what I do on the weekend with my professional curiosities yeah absolutely and do you want to talk a little bit about what you research where you were when we had to you know when we recorded this podcast the first time and now have to redo it yeah that was uh, a bit unfortunate last time I was on Tiritiri Matangi Island out here in the Horaki Gulf in Otero New Zealand and we got marooned on the island for two extra days because of weather uh, it was pretty extreme, and we actually had to cancel the trip after that because of weather as well. Uh, so kind of uh, complicating our fieldwork. But the reason I was out on Tiritiri Matangi was I researched Korora, little blue penguins. And I'm looking at their stress physiology and comparing it between sites near the city of Auckland to further away from the city of Auckland, uh, Fungare as well, uh, further north from here. 
and trying to see if urbanization is impacting these seabirds. Is it stressing them out? Is it impacting their ability to forage? And is it impacting their ability to reproduce subsequently? Yeah. And people who are listening are probably like, but he's studying New Zealand and he doesn't have an accent from New Zealand. You actually kind of have an Irish accent, but I know that you're also not from Ireland. So do you want to talk about how you even got to New Zealand in the first place? Yeah, everyone gets a bit thrown off by my voice. Americans say that I sound like slightly not American. Uh, I'm not Irish accent. Uh, But yeah, I'm not originally from Otero, New Zealand. I was raised in Texas and Corpus Christi. Uh, and then I lived in Ireland, and now I'm working here in Otero, New Zealand. Just got here last year. Yeah, so you haven't quite picked up that accent yet. Well, I don't know. I'll pick up the Kiwi accent. It's a bit odd, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and so you study seabirds. Now, have you found any results yet, or is everything still pretty preliminary? A lot of it's preliminary for my study, but we're, you know, we're building on the shoulders of giants. Uh, uh, we have plenty of work before, like one of my lab mates, Eden Whitehead, she did her master's thesis two years ago on the oi gray face petrel. And so we were expanding my thesis into that to compare across species instead of doing single species studies uh, to be able to compare and see, is it something about this species or is it something about this geographic location itself? Uh, so we're building off past things. Uh, uh, Shay Vickers, another one of my, I was never at the lab at the same time, but from my lab, a, a uh, alumnus of the lab, uh, she worked with Kwaka diving petrels, another one of my species. And those indications are what we're building off of. Carrie uh, Lukey's as well, my third species, uh, the Korora little blue penguin. Uh, so we have each of those species separately that we've been looking at and we're building off of them. And uh, so I assisted with some of those studies as well as ones with other seabirds uh, that are starting to give us indications. How are the conditions here in the Horaki Gulf? And what we're seeing is those near the city, as we could expect, are in general doing worse than those further from the city, but it is more complex than that. So we have things like bathymetry, the shape of the, uh, the ocean floor is impacting their ability to forage as well as uh, how dense the colonies are. We're expecting uh, birds in denser colonies to be a lot more stressed than those that are kind of spread out, even if it's you know further from humans versus closer to humans. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so if people are interested in researching science outside of the United States, do you have any advice for people for kind of branching out and maybe getting out of their comfort zone? Because it sounds like you've done that a lot in your life. Yeah, thankfully, I've had a lot of opportunities, been uh, very blessed to be able to get out and do these sorts of things. Uh, I would very much encourage it, Uh, particularly, I think the U.S. education system, you go very broad, but not very deep, uh, which is excellent for if you don't know what you want to do or you're going to have a very flexible career moving between different things. But really, if you want to dive deep on a subject, it seems many other educational systems are better for that. Uh, You have a much more focused, deep education rather than a broader one. I very much enjoyed my time in Ireland. It was some excellent stuff going on there. We got to do a lot of hands-on work as well as field work in South Africa for part of that. And then here, it's a similar system, much more focused, much more specific. And thankfully, both of those were directly conservation-related work. Whereas in the US, uh, I actually spoke with a range of people, did some surveys uh, on this, and many US students, if they ever took a conservation course, it was maybe one. Uh, And if they took ecology courses, it wasn't really the focus. Uh, It was just one part of the degree. Whereas here, 
from the first day you are working on conservation, you are very much focused on how do we protect the environment in this way. And I think it would be really great for students to see those different educational systems, particularly looking for one that will match you, whether you want a broader or more refined specific course of education. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to mention about your research before we move on to climate change? Uh, yeah, a lot of the threats to these penguins is directly human impact. Uh, it's not so much the environmental thing so much as walking a dog on a beach without a leash. Yeah, uh, that is the primary threat to these penguins. Uh, and it's something that's kind of absurd. Uh, that's not something that should be driving a species to extinction. It's just people refusing to have a leash on their dog when they're walking on a beach. So those sorts of impacts uh, are really what are threatening them. And we can all even if you're not from Otero, New Zealand or Australia, you can still get involved with that. Uh, we're always looking for little wool sweaters for them whenever they're doing rehabilitation after an oil spill, as well as this is probably less viable for people further away, but building nest boxes for them because nest boxes help uh, protect the chicks and take care of them with the environmental conditions. Oh my gosh, now I want to like spend my life knitting penguin sweaters. That sounds so fun. <laughs> Uh, it's really cute. It's really cute. Yeah. That's awesome. And then I guess the last thing that I actually wanted to ask you before we move into climate change, which I didn't have to ask you last time because I was also experiencing it with you, but tell us a little bit about your field conditions. What is that like when you're actually out on the island? Uh, it's quite varied. Most of our birds are laying their eggs in the winter, which here in the southern hemisphere is going to be the northern hemisphere summer. So we're just coming out of that right now. We don't really get terrible weather up here. Uh, Auckland is kind of tropical-ish in the summer and kind of temperate in the winter. The lowest we'll get is 5 or 10 degrees C. Uh, it's not too bad. But when you're working at night, because all of these seabirds come in at night, on an island, on these wind-blasted cliffs, yeah, it, it's not tremendously comfortable. And as we were talking about earlier, had to cancel a trip and got marooned on another trip. Oh, we actually had to cancel two trips last month. Uh, I was forgetting about the one earlier in the month. Yeah, it, it's rough conditions. Um, it's very choppy seas, uh, cold, rainy. Uh, we actually had hail while we were on that last call, and I was just hunkered down into um, a shed along the beach. Uh, yeah, it can be some rough conditions, but, you know, summer's coming up, and then it's much nicer. can get out to the sites without having to worry about, am I going to get hailed on while I'm walking out to the colony? And do you stay like in a tent or a cabin? Because I know we originally did our, our first interview from a tool shed and it was really windy out. So, Yeah, it depends on the site. Uh, so I primarily work on four sites and two of those I'm in a tent and two I'm in bunkhouses. So it's it kind of depends. The less occupied islands will usually be on a tent. The more occupied ones, there might be a bunkhouse or a hut or a uh, what they call like a holiday home here is a batch. We have one of those on one of the sites, but it's completely covered in geckos. So we don't actually go into it. Uh, for the most part, we just camp outside it. Yeah, it, it's varied conditions ranging from, you know, a tent that's barely hanging onto the cliff all the way up to a bunkhouse with Wi-Fi and electricity. <laughs> but probably still not a four star or five star resort by any means, right? Not quite five star. I think I would give them four just for, you know, the residents of penguins walking on by, you know, that that yeah. ups the quality. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so moving into climate change a little bit, then what do you think is the most important thing that everyone needs to know about our planet or climate? 
Well, obviously that it's changing and we're causing it. That's number one. But yeah. uh, I would say, you know, that's old news to many people. What I would say is the most important thing moving forward is that you can do a part in it. You can help reduce it. A lot of the time, it seems like such a big problem that you can't really do anything about it. Like, oh, does it really make that much of a change if I cycle to work instead of driving my car? Yeah, it does make a change. Um, but I would particularly focus less on those individual choices, which help. They certainly do help. Like, I've certainly reduced any of my carbon footprint I can. But those aren't the things that are going to make the big changes. You need large-scale collective action to be able to make changes on these. It's industries and governments that are doing most of the carbon emissions, putting out most of the toxic waste into the environment. So we need that collective action to be able to address it. Looking at the um, vote with your dollar style things of uh, vegan or driving hybrid cars, those sorts of things. The issue with that is that when you vote with your dollar, those with more dollars get more votes. And those that have more dollars typically aren't super interested in protecting the environment. In fact, often they make the money by destroying the environment. Oil companies. So we need that. Uh, yeah, oil companies, certainly. Yeah. Um, so we need to get that collective action and properly vote, not with a dollar. I mean, you know, vote with the dollar helps, but properly vote, properly address your representatives and say that you really care about climate change and you care about the earth and should take care of it. Yeah. And you're the are, are you the self-proclaimed global warming commie or is that actually a nickname that you received from someone else? Uh, kind of both. Um, yeah, uh, I'm certainly extremely left leaning in my personal views, but that was in reference to um, God, I can't remember what it was from, but I said something that was uh, critical of how capitalism is destroying the earth uh, because it is it objectively is studies are showing that. Uh, and someone said, this is why I don't care about you global warming commies. You just want to use my tax money to take care of penguins. And I was like, OK, I like that nickname. It's a new one being called a global warming commie. Uh, yeah, that's funny. And would you say like going back to kind of like the voting and stuff like that, would you say that you've seen a difference in how people address the threats of climate change in the three different countries that you've lived in? Yes, certainly a difference. Um, I don't believe I have met a climate change denier outside of the U.S. Uh, it is basically an endemic disease to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, there are what I would consider possibly a greater threat is the climate apathetics. The people that recognize, oh, yeah, climate change is a thing and we're causing it. But, you know, I don't really want to reduce the number of steaks I eat every month and I don't want to vote against my dollar and I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to take the bus to work, those sorts of things. Um, those things I find much more threatening because the deniers, we know they're wrong and you can only do so much to, uh, to work against it. But the people that recognize it's a problem but aren't willing to address it, I think is a bigger thing. And especially because that's a worldwide issue. The yeah. climate apathy is not something just endemic to the US. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Do you have any advice for young people who want to make a difference on the planet? I know we've been having the climate strikes recently, and that's all great. But what else can they do? Because they're so powerful. Yeah, uh, get involved. Do your climate strike. Yeah, uh, I would never encourage truancy, but this is an emergency. People need to be making their voices heard. Uh, I was part of the climate strike, actually, because I was marooned on Tiritiri Matangi. I couldn't get to the official Auckland one that had 80,000 students show up. 
in a city of one and a half million. Uh, so that is a massive proportion. Uh, but because I was marooned on Terimatangi, I just wrote my sign and uh, held it up in front of the pier, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, get involved. And particularly those of you that will be turning 18 soon or have recently turned 18, vote. Uh, depending on the country, it might be a different age, like uh, Otero New Zealand is thinking of dropping it to 16. So then these students that will be impacted by it for the next 60 years, they'll have a voice in it. Get involved. Get involved with the strikes. Get involved uh, with political action. Get involved with apolitical, or nothing's apolitical, but non-political uh, environmental type things. And even volunteering, uh, getting out, getting experience in those things so you can contribute all throughout your life, beginning you know, 16. Everyone wants a extra pair of hands volunteering. You don't have to, you know, have a degree to go out and do a beach cleanup or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of beach cleanups, since you work in kind of a lot of different areas, would you say that you have seen the effects of human pollution even in your re most remote um, field sites? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my most remote site is Pokehino Island up in the Mokehino Island group. And that is, you know, a good three, four hour boat ride from the nearest town. And that's a town, not a city. Uh, ooh, my soundproofing just fell down. <laughs> um, but yes, certainly there's uh, a lot of impact. We're having waste everywhere. It's certainly more so closer to the city of Auckland, but it is dramatically impacting even those very far away and because those ones don't often have you know the beach cleanups in a way it can accumulate much worse yeah. because when we're looking at Tiritiri Matangi there's people on it almost every single day of the week or if we count the the rangers as well every day of the week and they're often doing cleanups whereas the Mokihino you know I might be the first person to land on it in the last month and wow. no one else has been cleaning up and so it starts to pile up those sorts of things and we're even seeing it in the boroughs uh, it's not an official study or anything, but I've just been taking personal notes and more than half the penguin burrows have plastics in them. It's yeah. worse in some species like uh, Takapu, Australasian gannets. One of the colonies I was working with them within, you know, five meters of the little camp I had set up. Every single burrow had some sort of, or they're not burrows, nest. Every single nest had some sort of human waste in them, mostly fishing line and ropes, uh, as well as an entire fishing rod. Whoa. So are those things that the penguins collect or sorry, the birds and, and penguins collect and, and make into their nests or do they just come like, you know, blow there or, or come there through the waves? It's entirely possible that some of them will blow in like, you know, a sweets wrap or something like that. But the vast majority of it will be things the penguins brought in. Uh, they go around looking for nesting material and maybe a straw or a toothbrush looks like a nice stick to include in your nest. The Takapu, the Australasian gannets, that wouldn't be blowing in because it's very heavy stuff and they live on tops of cliffs. So I don't think it's very likely a fishing rod blew to the top of, you know, a 30 meter cliff. That uh, doesn't seem likely. Unlike uh, for the most part, it would be them carrying these waste items into their nests and into their burrows to use as nesting material. You'll get a little bit of it blowing in, but for the most part, they are properly choosing to take these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, what we kind of, I guess, already went into this a little bit, but maybe you have more to add. What would you have to say to climate change deniers if you met them in the United States or elsewhere? Uh, that's a tough one because there's so many different angles to the denial. There's the distrustful of science. There's uh, the 
oh, but we don't know if it's humans that are causing it, even though we do know that it's humans that are causing it. There's so many different angles to it, whether it's people doing it emotionally, people that object to the logic of it, uh, even from a religious basis that they have the right to control the environment, uh, uh, those sorts of things where they're saying, oh, it's changing, but I have the right to change it. Uh, to them, I would just say, really focus on local things. Look at how it's impacting your local environment, and you might start to notice it more than you think. Uh, particularly if you're living on coast, you're going to be noticing a lot more erosion and a lot of sea level rise. But what I'm seeing here is uh, I'm at home right now, and that house right there is occupied by Tongan refugees, that their islands are going underwater. It's something that's happening, not in the distant future, but happening right now. And the Pacific is the center of it. Otero, New Zealand's going to be taking in many, many climate refugees over the coming decades, primarily because of climate change, or entirely because of climate change. Uh, it's something that's going to be increasing, and you're going to start noticing that there are more and more climate refugees coming from these hotter, more arid places, as well as islands that are going underwater. People are really being impacted, and it's unbelievably selfish to think just because it hasn't personally impacted me that I shouldn't care. Yeah. And is um, New Zealand pretty like open to taking in those refugees or how is that working out? There is opposition to taking in more refugees, but in general, uh, it's been pretty good. Uh, Otero New Zealand has historically had quite a long relationship with the Pacific Islands in the past in a more imperialistic sense, but more recently in a more beneficial cooperative sense. Uh, um, and there are paths to citizenship and particularly favoring the Pacific Islands uh, for uh, residency and for citizenship, those sorts of things. And it's something that's being addressed. Uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has spoken on how she's wanting uh, New Zealand to be a home to these people, the people that are losing their homes. It's not even just, you know, they're choosing to move as I did. These are people that have to and are moving here. Uh, Australia has been quite resistant and Otero New Zealand is trying to step up to the plate and, uh, do their part for it. That's awesome. That's something the United States needs to work on a little bit too, but we can, you know, vote, vote, like you said, voting is most important. So yep. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we get into your obscure fact or pun about invertebrates? Hmm. Yeah, I would just like to reiterate, you know, on top of those other things, you know, vote, get politically involved in all those other things. Look at how you can improve your local environment. All of my sites are places uh, that uh, were rehabilitated or protected by people that just cared about the environment and did their part for it. Uh, we have the Kaitiaki uh, or uh, the Mori defenders of uh, their lands, and they have been tremendously helpful uh, in all this sort of environmental protection, always leading the way on those things, protecting the Fenua and the Moana, the land and the water. Uh, but we also have just young people or pensioners or just anyone that's interested in protecting the environment, like the island I was marooned on, Tiritirimatangi. Uh, beautiful documentary just released on it in the last few days. But it was essentially built up by volunteers that said, we care about this island. We want somewhere to protect these birds, protect these habitats, and completely replanted the island from being a farm to one of the most pristine, beautiful, and scientifically significant reserves in the country as well as Tafarunui, another one of my sites, uh, the Otata Island in the Noises group that just one family has taken a personal interest in rehabilitating. All these different places all up and down the country, just people that got interested in their local level. 
And if we get enough of these local level impacts, it really builds up to be global and we can rehabilitate wildlife across the world. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, and so with that, would you like to share an obscure fact or pun about invertebrates? Oh, so I don't work with invertebrates that much, but uh, as we discussed earlier with the Wetapunga, I like to make the most terrible pun possible for it because there's nothing better than a Weta. <laughs> they are some beautiful little crickets. Um, obscure facts about them. Yeah, they are incredibly endangered. Previously, they were found all over Aotearoa, New Zealand. But like with many other species, with the introduction of invasive uh, species from entirely humans, bringing them in, uh, rats, ferrets, stoats, mice, all those sorts of things, weta have been essentially driven off the mainland. And mm -hmm. most of the natural populations are on offshore islands. And even those, many of those were translocated from some of the remnant natural habitats. So they are one of the most endangered invertebrate species in the world, uh, have a lot of conservation work being done on them, which I know is not tremendously common for invertebrates. And, uh, you know, we got to take care of them because there's nothing better than a weta. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that so much. And that's really sad that it's endangered because you're just like you're I almost like them, like you're this close to <laughs> like them. So I guess I'll have to get down to New Zealand soon to see them and hopefully we can do more to protect them. Yeah, let's hope so. They're beautiful. They need to be taken care of. Yeah, yeah definitely. If people want to follow you on Instagram or, or find you on social media, um, how can they do that? I'm at Entirely Eco because I love my puns. Uh, my last name McIntyre. So it's at I-N-T-Y-R-E-L-Y underscore eco and on instagram i have a link tree leading to a few articles on some of my work and other work around the horaki gulf and particularly there's a wonderful video from the northern new zealand seabird trust which is uh these guys uh, talking about the horaki gulf seabirds and what we're doing to protect them so that'd be great to check out that's awesome i like that you're wearing your shirt too that's great <laughs> Well, thank you so much again for being on my podcast, Spencer, and for re-recording it with me so that people can actually understand what we're talking about. Um, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we could get it recorded, you know, <laughs> so we could actually hear it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you.